here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know for hip hop callers. Well, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start recording because I see we about to get into it. Well, I am with the amazing uh, Catherine Coleman Flowers. How are you? I'm doing fine this morning. How are you? We're doing good. We were just kind of getting into the conversation. We both share that we were both in the Air Force together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was something for most people that knew me at that time when, they, when I joined the service, they said, what? <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I come from a family of veterans. Uh, what people don't know about our people is that we've been the most patriotic ever since we've been here. Mm. You know, starting with Christmas addicts and the American Revolution. But my father was a Korean era vet. I have three brothers who served in the military. I was the only one in the Air Force. They were in the, in the Army and uh, and the Navy. And just about everybody from the community I grew up in in, in Lyons County had one or more members of, of, of the military in their family. Well, I read your book. And so I, I, I and I, first of all, I want everybody, we're we going to get all into that. Um, and I just want to tell you, I loved it. It was, it was, I, I feel like I know you now. I mean, I feel like <laughs> as you're talking, well, I was like, yeah, I, of course you. Your dad was a vet. Your dad actually was taken on when he was a civilian, taking on the, the Department of, of Defense and fighting it all. And, and you had to go through, you were saying how you were the Me Too before the Me Too. I, listen, I feel like I know you. I feel like I just got like you. <laughs> well, you know, I felt that, because I, I needed to, to get personal and let people know who I was because a lot of folk were raising questions or putting out false narratives about why I do this work. Mm. And, um, and and really what made me go deep was at, at, during the time that um, Brian Stevenson, who I worked for, was was um, open, getting ready to open the, 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 the National Memorial to Peace and Justice, which is known commonly known as the lynching memorial. Uh, he had asked me to interview Al Gore as part of the opening. And someone uh, transplant to Lowndes County wrote a letter addressing it to me. Mm. Um, and in this letter, she was telling me, I guess her side of the story about who I was, that I really wasn't from Lowndes County. And it was just, I was appalled that this person would even put something like that on paper. So when I started writing my book, I thought that it was necessary for me to open my life mm. as much as I could at that time. Some of it I had to retain, but I wanted to open my life to help people to understand that anybody can do what I do. You know, you don't have to be famous. You could come from the red clay roads of Lowndes County, Alabama. Come on now. <laughs> so that's why I felt it was necessary to open my life because I wanted to be able to inspire young people if I do nothing else to say, you know, no, no matter what kind of uh, situation you're in, there's always hope. And as long as you put one foot in front of the other, you'll make some progress. You know, it's interesting you say that. Because when I read, the, I, again, I, I love the book. And I encourage everybody to go read it. One of the things about the book was just that. You definitely go into your history a lot. You go into, there's not even just your history, but just just, just your, your legacy. I mean, everything, you, you go into the nitty gritty, you go from, from your community, you go into your, how you fought in your high school, you, you talk about when you went to Chevy Chase High School in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the DMV area, you go back home, you, you, you go back to how you chose, how you were choosing colleges and, and, and everything like that, and you go into every aspect um, which then lead, which like it's a, it's, it's an important piece of literally as a whole person. Um, there are some who may say that well, you should have just wrote about you know hookworm and about the environmental concerns, not about that. What would you say to them? Well, you know the hookworm situation didn't just occur. I I wanted people to know that there. It seems like my life when I look back, I reflected on it that there were people along the way that prepared me for when I came. In, in contact with the, the situation around hookworm. Uh, and I wanted people to understand that, that I was not, um, it was the people in the community, there were people along the way 
that helped me, that helped me to self-actualize. And I want to give, I want to give them recognition for that. And sometimes, you know, we meet people along the way and we never say thank you. Mm. And it was my way of saying thank you to all the people along the way that gave me the guidance that um, that was so valuable later on uh, that is helping me now. And it's years, years and years later. But I think it made for a more interesting story to tell <laughs> my life story along with that than to just start, you know, the hookworm situation. Because um, clearly, uh, I think that it was the fact that I came from Lowndes County and the fact that I had all those experiences is the reason why I'm here right now. Mm. Well, let's get right into it in this aspect. So you, if people, they need to read the book. And, and I tell you, I'm talking with Catherine Coleman Flowers. She is the author of One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. Um, and she has, she shares many of her insight in that book. I loved it. Um, she says a lot about herself. And so I just, you should read it. But Catherine, give us something that's not in the book or something, if, if, I ask you this question. Who is Catherine Coleman Flowers? Well, um, I'm a country girl from Lowndes County, Alabama. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I think it shapes who I am. Um, we didn't meet strangers. Mm. You know, I remember, you know, just to give you an idea of my family, I remember some guy along Highway 80, which was not far from where we lived in Lowndes County, his car broke down. I don't remember where he was. My youngest brother is a mechanic. And he always tinkered with cars even before he went in the military. And he stopped to help this young man and brought him home. My family fed him dinner. That's who my family mm. is and was. And that was, it was in that environment where we didn't meet strangers and people became lifelong friends. Mm. And uh, from my family, I've learned that wherever I go, I always reach out to people that I know and let them know I'm in town, spend time with them. Uh, same thing with relatives. My father was an only child, but everybody in Lowndes County was related to him. And I think that inspired my interest in genealogy. What people don't know is my part-time, uh, when I'm, the way I calm down and when I'm not working, I, I'm actually researching my family tree. And I've taken all the DNA tests and I've connected with relatives, not just here in the U.S., but relatives on the continent of Africa, mm. relatives in Europe, which was surprising to me. Um, but, yeah, that, that's, that's what people don't know about me, mm. is I'm about family. That's powerful. That's powerful. You know, one when thing you also about the children, too. I loved one of the things in the book that got me was how it just it leaped off the pages, how you were so proud of your students because you were a teacher. Uh, I, I'm assuming are you still? Te I, I mean, I know you, you know, big time writing these books and you do all this, all this nice, all this stuff. Now you you still teaching the, the, the babies here, or is that still? Do you get time for that at all? Uh, yeah, I, I teach a different way now. Yeah. I'm a practitioner in residence at Duke University. There are mentor students in environmental justice. Um, and I just accepted a Levinick residency in sustainability at the University of Illinois. And there I'm also engaged with, with young people. Um, it, it, it keeps me young myself. Yeah. You know, it's just, it, it's encouraging. It, it's, it, it's, it, um, it's like part of my vitality is coming from the hope that I get from young people mm. that can do the things that I can no longer do that are going faster and taking that race, running that race on to the next level. We saw that in Georgia, you know, so I am, I, I, I just get so much hope from being around young people. Uh, one of the stories I tell that that was pretty um, engaging to me was, you know, after the 2016 election, I had to do something different. And two days later, after that election in November, I got on the plane, I went to Standing Rock. Mm. And what was one of the things that was inspiring to me even before I got there is that on the plane were young people with their sleeping bags who had left school and their parents didn't know. Mm -hmm. It just reminded me of SNCC. And one of the things that I, as a, as a teacher and as a 
student of history, because my, my degrees are in history, is that young people have been at the center of every major change that's ever happened in the world. So the fact that I see young people still moving, still doing things, and still out there trying to make America real, you know, realize what its promise is, um, I, it keeps me hopeful and engaged. Did you see a, as you went, when you went to Standing Rock, um, did you see a connection with the civil rights movement out there in Standing Rock as well? Yes, I did. Um, what, what I saw was, um, well, for me personally, it was a reconnection with my indigenous heritage. Mm -hmm. But uh, because, you know, when I, and then seeing how um, women, had a major role in terms of organizing the protests and they were nonviolent. Um, and, and the fact that there were people that were there from all over the, the country and, and from other parts of the world who came and stand to stand there and, and in some cases put their, their lives on the line. I think one of the things I saw was different to Standing Rock was that, that the few actions that I went to, uh, the people of color were placed in the center. Mm. And the people that were white got on the front lines because the police were very militarized. And folk were, uh, that was something that that uh, I saw that the rest of America saw, you know, when the protests were happening last year. But I think at Standing Rock, it was really obvious that something had changed and we needed to shift it back. But, the, but in terms of the heritage, when I went to Standing Rock, uh, we were, there was a, campfire for those that went there probably saw the new know the story already but there was a campfire at the center where people were gathering in the evening and I remember standing around the campfire and they were singing and I'm, I'm assuming they were singing in Sioux but it sounded like to me it was a spiritual experience because it sounded like they were saying singing spiritual uh, moans mm. from the black church and since that time I've I, I'm, I'm trying to chase this down, but since that time, I, I'm learning that there is a similarity. And, in, and the question that came to my mind is, which came first? Mm. And I'm still, re, I'm still running that one down, but there is a similarity. And I, I actually saw um, there were some people who, uh, who, were, who were putting together research at a creek. And, and when I heard them sing, it sounded so similar to the black church. And I think what we have not explored is the relationship between black and indigenous people here in the US. And while I was there, I thought it was so interesting that a lot of my indigenous brothers and sisters would come up to me and ask me which tribe I was a part of. Mm. And I couldn't answer that question. But um, but that is- That's powerful. You know, yeah, it was, it's very powerful and empowering, mm. which may, you know, and, and there are so many similarities between African culture and indigenous culture here because we're both indigenous to the land and also appreciate the land. Um, and, and it was just a natural evolution to be there. But I think in terms of the movement, I saw a lot of the, the tactics that were used, especially tactics around nonviolent uh, protests were, were also incorporated and used as standing rock. Mm. It's interesting, the cry for Standing Rock was Mini with Shoni, Water is Life. Um, and it's very similar to the fights that you're having and still pushing forward in Alabama. That literally you're fighting for clean water, you're fighting for sewage to be, to be remedied, you're fighting for people to have septic tanks um, on their homes. Um, you're simply fighting for people to have basic, the basic needs. Did you feel that connection when you were there? When you, when you left, I mean, obviously it was, it was probably, I don't know if it was cold when you were there, but when you left Alabama, cold. <laughs> when, you went to, when you went up there to North Dakota, did you feel the similarities? Like, wow, the struggle was the same. Yes, I, I felt the similarities. I, I saw the people that were fighting for the status quo, just like in Lowndes County or anywhere else, there are people that are going to fight for, for the status quo because they fear change or they fear that, that economically they will be impacted because they don't want to give up being at the top of the food chain. Um, and I saw that in, in um, I saw that in Standing Rock, um, 
you know, there was a book that was written about the civil rights movement called Outside Agitators. And local people, there were letting us know in some cases that they didn't want us there. But, uh, but at the same time, I saw the unity uh, that was there. And there were a lot of local police officers that were not, uh, that, that, that were resigning, would not participate in um, attacking uh, the protesters and some of them. That's why there were so many people there from other places uh, who were brought in because the, the local people would not do it. So, so yeah, it, it was a, uh, uh, it was quite an experience. I guess it was almost like in some ways similar to SNCC coming to Lyons County, but in terms of what is life and, 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 and many with Choney, um, I think we all felt that way because if we think about, you know, the black experience, you know, water is kind of the center of, we talk about our spirituality, you know, part of it is either we're immersed with water, we're sprinkled with water or where our feet are being washed, mm. you know, so, so water is, um, ha has a very sacred role and we come out of water. You know, I often say that we start looking at earth, our common home as a womb, we were treated differently. You mentioned the woman of Standing Rock, um, indigenous women of color. Um, how important it is for women and women of color to not only be a part of this movement, but leading this movement? Well, I, I think that is very important. I think what's even more important is that women of color have always led movements, but women never get the recognition. And I have, throughout my life, it's been the women that were the advisors who, picked up the phone and called me. Um, even now, I, I, when I go to different communities, you know, I got a chance to go out and visit uh, like Allensworth in, in the Central Valley in California that I write about. You know, Allensworth was the first black uh, community that was funded by black folk mm -hmm. uh, in California. And they're the people that were keeping the legacy of Allensworth alive were women. And then when I went, when I was called to Centerville to see the, the wastewater problem, it was women that were that were leading that. Two young women, two young attorneys. Um, some of the people since the Guardian's article just came out, we were doing a, a year-long series with the Guardian, looking at wastewater problems around the United States, um, and, and and amplifying the voices of people in those local communities so that our officials in Washington can know that this is not a just a Lyons County problem, this is a nationwide problem. It's a technology issue that, that, that coincides with climate change. And we saw what happens when you ignore the infrastructure needs. We, we're seeing that play out in Texas right now. Mm. So um, we when it, with this, this uh, series that we're doing with The Guardian, we're amplifying that. And we're also asking people to self-report because there are no clear figures on how many people are impacted by it. But the people that are reaching out to me are women. Hmm. They're taking the lead. And they're the ones that are speaking up when other persons have profited from what has happened. But think about it. They're the ones that have to protect their families oftentimes right. from, from the diseases that could come about as a result of sewage running back to the home or sewage out on the ground near their home. You sit in a and on many boards now and, and, and high places, and, and that's great because we need your voice there. Um, how important it is for women like you, women of color, to be in those positions on these, these large climate organizations and to be there? And, and, and what do you, and, and, and do you sometimes feel you have to always speak up and, and champion? You know, I mean, how, I mean, I mean how, how, does that, how does that go along as well? Well, yes, I, I have to. I mean, that's why I'm there. Mm. Uh, and I, I would not have accepted the role without making it clear that I am going to speak up. I am going to present a perspective that they may not know about, especially if a person hasn't grown up in a rural area. Certainly they have not. They're not a person of color. And sometimes people only know people that are in their tribe. They don't know people outside of the area. So it's important for me to be there. So when it's time to recruit other board members, I can keep that door open where other board members can come and bring perspectives that will center these organizations in environmental justice because a lot of them are not. Um, so I think that, that that's an important role to play. Kind of, you know, I, I've heard stories about people who said it to do with gatekeepers where I'm a gate opener. 
Come on now. You know, come on now. You know, I'm going to hold it open <laughs> so that more people can come in, especially young people. And again, my, you know, you alluded to my role as a teacher. I feel like I'm always going to be a teacher. You know, when I was a teacher, I felt like teacher was an activist, a person that's being paid to be an activist, you know, because we, part of education is not just uh, young people regurgitating the information that, that the system expect them to, to know and give back on the standardized test. But I'm glad that I taught my students a preamble and helped them to understand the constitution so that when people tried to tell them that it was something different, they knew that they were lying. Right. And, and I think that's what's wrong today. We don't have civics education. And a lot of people don't know. I heard a person who had just been elected a U.S. Senator from Alabama saying that there were not three branches of government. I was like, what? Mm. You know, they should re- require that the people that run for those offices have to pass the citizenship. At least. <laughs> at least, at least pass a civics test to get in. Um, you mentioned environmental justice. That is right now the one of the, the frames that people are talking about a lot because the Biden administration has been saying he's going to create a, a whole government approach to environmental justice. But for those listening, what is environmental justice? Well, environmental justice is, to put it real simple, is to make sure that the people that are sitting, people in the communities are sitting at the table and making decisions about what is cited in their community. And if you want to see environmental justice or injustice, go to Cancer Alley, where you would see all of these petrochemical plants. I call the Disneyland of uh, petrochemical, the Disneyland of the fossil fuel industry, right there uh, next to churches and Mm. and schools that are uh, contaminating the air and the water. And the local people have no say in that. The people that sold the land to them are former plantation owners who are selling land to multinational corporations that are coming and defiling Louisiana and where people have lived for years, longer than a lot of white people in this country. These are black people that have been there for years, when probably when it was the Louisiana Territory hmm. and before then when the French were in control. So now here they are, they cannot enjoy their land and their, uh, the livelihood of their community. In some cases, they've even, the companies have even bought the spots where their cemeteries are, where their, their loved ones are buried. They got to get permission to go there. Mm. So that is environmental injustice. So the, the whole frame of environmental justice is making sure that we roll back those structures that have been put in place. A lot of it is related to racism, too. A lot, all of it is really racism and economic inequality. To, un- to unpack those layers so that people there can have access to clean air and clean water because they are now suffering from decisions that were not made by them or made by people that don't live there. But they're the ones that, are, that have the high cancer rates as a result mm. and probably high COVID rates too. So that's just my way of framing environmental justice. But I have to say, a segue into... Um, I'm, I'm proud of what the Biden administration is doing because I was part of writing that policy. Um, I invited Senator Bernie Sanders, breaking news. <laughs> I invited Senator Bernie Sanders to come to Lowndes County and he came, came in 2019. And I took him to meet Pamela Rush. Mm. And um, it was very emotional for me because the fact that a presidential candidate cared enough to come and see what poverty looked like. Wow. visit a woman that lived in a mobile home and to go in that home and sit and talk with her. And, and, and that was, um, and it wasn't a campaign stop. It was a genuine, authentic visit. And it was so overwhelming to me that I cried. Mm. And he said to me, I'm going to send help. So last year, uh, I received a call and it was from his campaign manager saying that he was also there with Senator Sanders. And he said that Senator Sanders said he's going to, he was going to send help. So he's currently negotiating with the Biden administration to set up these task forces. And he wants to appoint you to be on the climate change task force. I said, okay. And then later we had a call 
And Senator Sanders said to me, because I was wondering why he put me on the climate change team. Mm -hmm. He said to me, I want you to bring environmental justice home. And I think, (laughs) and I think we did, we did more than bring it home. Mm. Now everybody's talking about environmental justice. That's powerful. No, and and I so when 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 Senator Sanders came, one that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. And two, when he came, I wish I wish every candidate would come. We got we got to make sure in the future every candidate need to come through Lyons County. That's got to be that's got to be a prerequisite. <laughs> yeah, and they got they got to come through Lyons County and stop and visit because a lot of them come through Lyons County and go to Selma, mm. but you can't get to Selma from Montgomery without going through Lyons County. Come on now. But, and they need to understand the history and the power of Lowndes County because that's where the original Black Panther Party was founded, in Lowndes County. And there were young people that went there and organized with former sharecroppers and Black landowners to, to organize the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, which took as its emblem the Black Panther. And they ran their own slate of candidates. That's powerful within itself. And I think that's the story that we need to to make sure that people know because it's our history and it's real. And I and some of us, some people that were part of that movement still feels that that's why Lowndes County is neglected to this day because people are still, there are still people around. We gotta remember a lot of these people are still alive. Mm. You know, this was the 1960s, it wasn't that long ago. So some of these people that are in state government now are still punishing Lowndes County because Lowndes County is no longer uh, the place that was controlled by racial terror that is now controlled by black people, but it does not allow Lowndes County to prosper and grow uh, as it should because of its history and its history of resistance. Mm. Let me ask you a question about that. You mentioned actually in the book, you talk about uh, Kwame Ture, uh, Stokely Carmichael, and how that, that, that depiction of the Black Panther that was created there uh, when they were doing the voting work in Alabama and other work um, in the Black Power Movement, that that would then catch fire, obviously, in California and other parts of the country to create that that symbolism. Um, do you feel that we have um, that same kind of fire that was there around environmental justice? I think the environmental justice is, um, yes. I do see that that type of fire. Uh, I think I, I think environmental justice means so many things. I know I know that there are activists that feel that it that it might mean whatever is happening in their community, but even the fact that you know a black life doesn't really matter in this country as much as it should. I mean that's environmental justice. That's why we have these these uh, polluting. Uh, plants cited in our communities. Right now, one of the fights that I'm involved in, and I'm supporting the people in Memphis who are fighting the Bahalia pipeline, a pipeline that they're taking through a Black community and will go through um, an area where there are wellheads, again, water, um, and, and they don't care. And I've, I've heard stories of folks showing up at the homes of, of people saying you have to sign to give us right away to go through your property because everybody else is dying or we're going to fight you in court. So it's those kinds of things that we have to fight because it's still happening in real time. You know, we can't just because, you know, Biden and Harris are in office, we can't sit on our laws. A lot of these deals were struck before they got in office. So we have to make sure that we use the power that we have. And young people, the person who's leading that fight is a 27-year-old. And he is so powerful. When I got the call um, to get involved in this, and the person that called me said to me, he's a climate reality leader and an actor and activist. And he called me and he said, this young man, Justin, got to meet him. And we had a Zoom call. And he was so, I mean, this he has a future. So that fire is in him. The fire of Kwame Ture, the fire of SNCC, all of our ancestors, I can see it in this young man, and there's so many justices around the country. So I, I see even young people that are reaching out to me that want to be a part. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of overwhelming, uh, but positive because there's so many young people that say, I want to be a part of it. What can I do? 
and and I, and I, and framing it through the lens of environmental justice was uh, in framing how government functions. I think should hopefully seep down to all levels of government, not just the federal level, but the state level and the local levels too. Because a lot of these decisions that aren't made by the on the federal level, they do end up impacting us when the when the state government is still trying to use the structures of inequality and the structures of racism to control the labor, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Mm. Young people are using the term environmental liberation. How does that term hit you when you hear it? Oh, wow. That's a great term. <laughs> um, it, 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 I think ultimately, if we liberate or apply justice to the way we deal with earth, our common home, a lot of these things would change. Mm. Uh, we wouldn't have the coronavirus. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the, the the healthcare disparities that exist in our community. We wouldn't have the reduction of life expectancy of black men. I mean, wow. If, if we don't understand Black Lives Matter, when people read that, they should understand it now. But because of our environment, it has made us far more vulnerable to all kinds of ill of society, and and and, and all the neglect that has happened over the years because we're no longer free labor <laughs> um, is being manifested now, clear, very clearly. And, and I think that for us to get to where we need to be, you know, Kwame Ture and others took us to a certain point, but to get us to where we need to be, you know, it's kind of like when we talk about, you know, it's my, talk about my faith a little bit here because I, that's the only way I can explain things. No, please, you can do it here. Always. It's kind of like, you know, we've come out of we, we come out of Egypt and we're wandering in the wilderness, but it's going to take the young people, you know, the errands to take us to the other side. So, uh, and I think that when I think about environmental liberation, that's what I think about. How it's going, but what they're doing is not just helping black folk; it's helping all of us, because the degradation of the earth creating so much destruction that the very, uh, that humankind is threatened right now. Humankind. But it's going to be the young people, I believe, to take us to the other side and to save mankind as it is our humankind. Because we, um, we've gotten to a point that we care more about profit than we care about people. And folk are really willing to make uh, human lives, collateral damage. We saw that when they called COVID a hoax and didn't do anything. So I'm very hopeful and I want to learn a whole lot more. That's where young people have to teach me about what they think environmental liberation is. And, and I hopefully can help them achieve that with the time that I have left. Well, you have your own term, your label you've been saying, America's Dirty Secret. What is that? America's dirty secret is that we have third world conditions here in this country, the wealthiest country in the world, you know, and we, we kind of like, one of the things about the last administration, it reminds me of the, you know, the fairy tale about the emperor's new clothes. You know, the emperor went around talking about it. somebody told him he, they made this invisible garment for him, but he actually was, had exposed himself. <laughs> uh, and likewise, that's what has happened in America. We were bragging about how we we're so wealthy and how everybody wanted to come here. And why do we have people coming from these asshole countries? And we had assholes right here in the United States. So that's America's dirty secret is how do we, the richest country in the world, have conditions here that have been here that uh, Dr. Philip Austin, who's UN Special Rapporteur in Extreme Poverty, when he went to Lyons County, he saw raw sewage on the ground and the way people were living. He said that this is uncommon in the first world. Mm. That's America's dirty secret. Mm. You know, Catherine, in the book, you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of mentioned this last administration. And the last administration was, has created such a partisan divide in our country. But in the book, you were able to actually work with people across the aisle. You were able to reach out to people who were either conservative or Republicans and get them to come and 
and support either Lowndes County or support the work or just this, this literally just be human, to be honest. You think that's, do you think that's possible now in this climate to do what you did in the book? Yes. It was, it, even then the climate was bad. <laughs> uh, the political climate was bad because remember we had a divisive election. Uh, the person that I voted for didn't win. At least they said he didn't win. And he's someone that I work with now. But I had to deal with the fact that I couldn't wait for another administration who I thought I liked to get in office while people in Lowndes County were suffering and still had raw sewage on the ground. So um, it just so happened I was doing economic development for Lowndes County at the time. And I went to a town hall meeting and that's where I met Jeff Sessions. Uh, I actually met Bob Wilson earlier at Steelman College. He was speaking there and actually we got into a contentious exchange because I, I couldn't understand why he was a Republican. But later, when we met again at a faith-based summit, uh, and we talked, and then I asked him for help with Lowndes County. He invited me to his office, and we connected around faith, and he came to visit. And a lot of the people that he brought with him were not, uh, were not Republican. Mm. What one person he brought with him was actually a, um, he, he, he described, he was his best friend. You told me that he was a yellow dog Democrat. Mm. Actually, what's a yellow dog Democrat? He was just going to be a Democrat through and through. He was not. <laughs> That's what basically what he meant. And, 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 and he had been a part of SNCC, mm. um, working on the Eastern Shore in Maryland back in the 1960s, this, this, this young person. Well, when he was a young person. His name is Cliff, name is Cliff Henry, who was one of the best um one of the best minds in terms of economic development at that time and, and advised me quite a bit. And I met him through Bob Wilson. Uh, Jeff Sessions is the one that surprises everyone. But um, I asked him a question at a town hall meeting about, he was talking about, uh, you know, what, what the senators do. They have town hall meetings in small towns throughout uh, Alabama. And I asked him a question about, uh, the funds that were available because he was talking about the funds that were I said, how does Lowndes County access when there's no tax base? There's a 25% match. You know, how, how do rural communities get access to these funds? He couldn't answer the question. So what he, what he did was, what I give him credit for is that he came to me afterwards. He walked, to, walked up to me and he talked to me and he said, um, I'm from Wilcox County, Alabama. I knew what that meant. He was from Black Belt. Mm. He said, I grew up poor. Catherine, I've always wanted to know what to do, but I don't know what to do. Mm. That's how we started our friendship. And throughout his, um, actually throughout um, the time he was in the Senate, I could always reach out to him. And uh, there was a another situation. There, there's a Lowndes County Interpretive Center along the 7th Montgomery Marsh that tells the the first interpretive center telling the history of the voting rights movement. And when that interpretive center opened, uh, a woman who was over the daughters of the Confederacy wrote him a letter complaining about it. She called it a temple orgy of hate. She even wrote an op-ed in, I think, the Selma Times Journal protest. And she was at the site when we opened trying to protest then, but they were kind of expecting her. So Senator Sessions decided to make a visit to the interpretive center. And I had talked with some of the local leadership um, about the interpretive center. And one person who was advising me said, tell him it needs to come from under the state of Alabama and be placed under the National Park Service. Mm. As he said on, the, on a committee that oversaw the National Park Service. And we went through um, looking at everything. And when we got to the end, he said, said, because um, he had invited me to, to accompany him, he said, Catherine, this history needs to be preserved. Mm. And the uh, interpretive center was removed from under the auspices of the State Department of Transportation, Alabama State Department of Transportation, and put under the National Park Service. You know, I, I love your, your optimism. 
<laughs> and I I love reading it in the book. I have to tell you, it's 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 hard for me though. I, I maybe and I'm trying to maybe I'm like many of the listeners right now. I just a lot of those folks who are just being climate deniers, they're doing things to our communities, they're intentionally creating these sacrifice zones, they're intentionally polluting. I just don't, and 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 I I so I admire and I want us to figure it out, but in this climate, I guess as they're fighting to hold on to the fossil fuels, you you believe that there's some good ones in essence who we can reach to and they, and 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 they can and tap into that, or and, and we got to find the good ones. I guess, I guess I'm trying to just figure out how we how how we get there. Well, you know, what I've done a lot of is listening. Um, So prior to COVID, I traveled quite a bit. And oftentimes, you know, flying out of Montgomery, you're on a small plane. So, you know, you you get a little bit too personal sometimes (laughs) because you're so close to each other. You know, and and I'm a short person. So if I can stand out and almost touch both ends of the plane, it's a small plane. And I just remember, just to give you an example of it, I was on the plane once and uh, this gentleman, he was a contractor and he was talking to me and he was talking politics to me. And um, and he talked about, um, you know, and what I do, I don't name names sometimes. I just deal with values. And at the end, he said, I didn't vote for Roy Moore. Mm. I voted for Nick Saban. <laughs> so he wrote, he, he wrote Nick Saban's name in during that race. I mean, he just, that he, you know, and I knew he was a Republican. Chances are, most people that I was probably going to be encountering would be Republican. But I've met people. Um, I'm in a very red state. Mm-hmm. If I did not, if I just talked to people based on their political party, I wouldn't talk to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But the goal is not to convince the choir. We're already singing the same song. I'm trying to convince some other folk. And if and even if I move them just a little bit, just a little bit, is more than where they were before. I was in um and in my new book that I'm writing, um, I'm really recounting a lot of things that happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. And in 2020, um, one of the things that happened, I I at the beginning of 2020, I was invited to Georgetown to be part of um their teach to speech program. And the speech that they used at that time was Dr. King's Why We Can't Wait. Mm. And I actually modified it to talk about the things that you and I are talking about right now. And when I, and afterwards, um, I was invited to attend a meeting of a think tank. And at this meeting, there were a lot of influences, people that influence policy various levels of government and also from the nonprofit sector. And there was someone there talking, he was so arrogant the way he was saying, well, you are going to have to make a choice between whether you want lead out of the water or sanitation. Mm. I'm using the only one there talking about sanitation. And I said to him, I waited and I calmly said, you know, sir, I'm sure you're saying this because you're coming from a place of privilege. You don't have to make those choices. And why should we? Then I went on to say, you know, I just got a chance to do the teach to speech program at Georgetown University. And the title of the speech was Why We Can't Wait. Mm. That speech was, was delivered in the 1960s. It's very applicable now. And I suggest that you read it. I suggest that everybody around the table read it. After that, you could hear a pen drop. But when I left the meeting, I ended up getting an email from a from an intern that was there who said to me, and she was a young white woman. She said, I'm glad that you talked about environmental justice. Because after then, it, it, it switched the tone of the meeting. I didn't have to be there because everybody else talked about environment. I think that that we have to not be afraid to go into these places where we're going to face opposition because we may 
end up, we may end up activating within some of the people that are in the room, uh, the, the courage to speak up to. And I think that's what happened at that point. Connect the dots for us between sanitation and climate justice. Oh my God, yeah. Everything that we're dealing with as it relates to, to this. Uh, we have, with, with the on-site systems in particular, and we're also finding out on-site septic systems for people that live in rural communities, the failures tend to happen when there's rain. You know, we've had a lot of rain recently uh, because of these winter storms. So I'm gonna start hearing more and more from people who are saying my septic system is failing. Failure means it comes back into the house because the ground gets wet. It absorbs in Lyons County, it absorbs and holds water. And we also have high water tables with sea level rise, the water tables are, are raising. I talked in my book, I talked about the Miami area, but I'm hearing from people in other parts of Florida that are saying it's not just the Miami area. We were having septic tank failures throughout the state because of these issues. I just heard from a group from a law school in Georgia who's done research on law, these are the lawyers doing research on the policy and how it has to change because of um, septic systems are failing in, coast, in the coastal states. Mm. I hear from people in Georgia who talk about failures and when it rains uh, in DeKalb County, they're having problems with their septic systems as well. And that's outside of Atlanta and Atlanta metropolitan area. Uh, people throughout the country in, in Alaska is because of melting permafrost. The infrastructure is failing. And then also in Alaska, we have people like folk in Lyons Canada who never got infrastructure in the first place. In Alaska, they're still, in some parts of Alaska, especially rural Alaska, they're still using honey buckets. All, all while they're dealing with climate change and villages falling into the ocean because they're melting away. Uh, in, in, in Hawaii, they're having problems because of sea level rise. The cesspools are not working. Uh, in 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 Puerto Rico, I've heard from people there that are having problems. Upstate New York having problems. Long Island having problems. So a lot of these problems are going to intensify because of climate change. And, and to bring it on home more recently, a friend of mine wrote me from San Antonio because of the, um, the winter storm that happened there. Five inches of snow kind of shut it down, shut down the whole state. And he said, um, I asked, did he have power? He did have power, but he said, I can't use my toilet. Mm. I said, now you understand what I'm dealing with every day. He said, all too well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. How do we, what would you want the Biden administration to do to fix that? Right right now, if you, if you, if you, 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 you have some access. So, but if you, if you add into their list, uh, uh I guess more so from not the EO, but the legislation standpoint. What would you want to see? Well, well, well what I like to see is for Congress to come out with comprehensive legislation to provide money to those areas. For an example, here in Montgomery, there's some people here in Montgomery that don't have wastewater treatment. We have a functioning wastewater treatment system here. Let's find out who those people are, do a survey and expand the systems that are in existence that are functioning properly. At the same time, we need to have a, um, we need to have set up centers of innovations that on college campuses throughout the US, especially those with, the, with students from rural America who can, can share their experiences of what it's like with these failing systems to create something new and different. Actually, what I envision, I plan to go to Huntsville and work with uh, the HBCUs up there because you also in Huntsville, Alabama, you got more engineers per square mile than probably anywhere else in the United States. But you also have the Department of Defense there because of the Redstone Arsenal. And you also have NASA there because of the Johnson Space Flight Center. I think there that I will find the brightest minds to be able to put together a concept using space age technology to treat wastewater. Mm. Because the question is, how do we treat wastewater in outer space? It's because they're on a spaceship, don't mean they don't go to the bathroom. How is it treated? And how is it treated to drinking water quality? Why we can't take the same type technology that helped to create GPS tracking, that helped to create the cell phone, and come up with a way in which we can treat wastewater to drinking water quality, recycle and reuse, and at the same time, kill viruses, kill uh, parasites with this system 
So we don't have to worry about the next pandemic potentially coming from right here in the United States of America. Well, Miss Catherine Coleman Flowers, you know, I, I just want to say you are impressive. The book is amazing. But I do have a couple more questions kind of moving from this part right here. So I, I want to get, this is more the cultural side of things. So on the, okay. on the cultural side of things, when I was reading the book, I was checking out, so you, let me see I got this right. When you first was going to school, you went to try to get ready for school by going to Talladega. I, I think that was, then, you, then from there you went to, um, uh, what's the, what's the, I went to, actually, actually, I went to Alabama State University the summer of 1976 right. when I came out of high school. But I accepted a scholarship to Talladega, but go on from there. And then from there, you went back to Alabama State, I think. Yes, I did. I'll, I'll do my whining tour because you, you you ended up at my alma mater for a little bit at Howard University for like about a week. You was there before you went back down to Alabama State. You like, listen. And the one thing about that, you mentioned them folk up there was a, you says you said you said them folk up there, man. You you hadn't seen black folk like that before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had. <laughs> no, I had. I mean, I always didn't, you know, because I lived in the quad, so you know, and they had um, in, in the quad, you know, there there was a the area where you would go and sit in the day room, and and people would come there and they were talking about their trips to Europe and 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 stuff like that. It was like, wow. <laughs> so I, I'm from the country. I need to go somewhere. <laughs> I understand my experience. It was a different kind of experience. I, it was, it was almost like going to school with black society. Mm. And and I was not. I didn't feel comfortable at that time because I, I could not afford to dress in the most, you know, the latest fashions and so forth. I was a country girl from a poor family working class family that was doing the best they could. They really didn't want me to go to Howard because Howard was a private school and they couldn't afford it. But I had people that supported me in the effort to, to go there, uh, even at Howard University itself. And it was um, uh, it was quite an experience, but although I was only there for a short time, I learned a lot because uh, you know the Omegas had their grad house there on campus at a, um, a big, office there and they they held a um a conference on the Baki case mm. and the Baki case was the case that where uh Alan Baki sued uh university to to challenge uh, uh to challenge affirmative action so I went there to the seminar that the Omegas were hosting and Dr. Herbert Reed was there and uh, and afterwards, I went up to him and I told him that I was from Alabama, I was from Lowndes County. And he told me at that time, he said, Catherine, there's a case in um, at Alabama State University that's just as important to affirmative action in higher education as the Baki case is. He said, you really need to go back there and help people to understand that. And I said, I would like to go back to school. It's already started. <laughs> I said, I can't, I can't go back right now. He said, I'm gonna give my, I'm gonna give Levi Walkers a call. How do I get in touch with you? I had a phone in my room, so I gave him a phone number. Then the next day I got a call from Dr. Watkins, who was the president of Alabama State University. And he said, I understand you ran into my old friend Herbert Reed. And he said that uh, you want to come back to Alabama State University. He said, when you get here, come to my office. So I packed up. Because it was always the call of justice that I listened to before I listened to whether or not I need to be in school at this time, which I hope that, you know, younger people have a balance there that I didn't have at that time. So. I, I packed up and I went back to Alabama State University. And, and while I was there, organized two marches to save the school because there was also a plan on the way by the governor at that time to turn, uh, to take the, there were three three campuses at that time, public school in, in Alabama State School. Um, there was Auburn University in Montgomery. Um, and there was Troy University in Montgomery. And what they wanted to do was turn them 
turn all the campuses into the University of Montgomery and merge Alabama State University under those schools. And Alabama State University was the oldest school. And the, the person who came up with the tragedy to challenge, it was Joe Reed, whose son is now the mayor of Montgomery, Stephen Reed. So Joe, Joe Reed's strategy was let's sue based on a case that Tennessee State had brought. Let's sue. Let's sue the state. Let's sue them in federal court. And what we're going to ask for is that if any school is going to close, it's going to be those two schools because they were put here to keep the white kids wouldn't have to go to Alabama State University. And they would have to merge on the Alabama State University. Mm. But that strategy saved ASU because they wanted to save the other two schools. <laughs> so Troy still exists in Montgomery. AUM still exists in Montgomery. But they, uh, at that time, they could not duplicate what was being offered at Alabama State University. So I got I got two last tough questions for you. They're, they're tough ones here now. They, these are going to be hard ones. Who had the baddest marching band, ASU or Howard? ASU. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm still a hornet, so ASU. All right, listen. Still, still, still has the baddest marching band. With no hesitation. <laughs> with, with no hesitation. I love it. But but I, but I will say the HBCUs have the baddest bands in this land. I know that's right. Across the land. No, yeah. no doubt about it. <laughs> Well, Catherine, this is my last question. When when you need to kind of pick yourself up um, and just kind of listen to something, what 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 song do you put on that gets your spirits going high? Yolanda Adams, the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. I mean, that's what I, sometimes I have to, you know, back, you know, I'm, I'm from the country, so... In the country, people talk about prayer closets. And sometimes you have to go into that prayer closet and and then find that inspiration. And that's what I've learned to do. And sometimes I call on the ancestors. You know, I tell my parents who have gone on and all my guardian angels, you know, I want you to negotiate with me <laughs> because I need to, I need, I, I need this, I need the answer. Sometimes I don't know the answers, but I, have faith, and uh, but I also uh, the other way in which I kind of calm down. I, people don't know this. I go on Instagram and I watch TikTok <laughs> videos. <laughs> I told my daughter, I said, you know, I'm gonna do the busted challenge. <laughs> she said, Mama, you have really. She said, Since COVID, you have really calmed down a lot. You, you, you you're not as serious as you used to be. I like you. <laughs> She said, and, if, and I told her I was doing this show, and she said, if you want to get some cool, cool points, just at the end of the sentence, just say period. With a T. Oh, really? Period. Oh, that's what she was trying to say. I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> she said, she said I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you how to relate to the hip-hop generation. <laughs> but what she doesn't know is that at, when I was teaching in D.C., I would take my students to the hip-hop conference. Mm. Yeah, so I, I felt like in order for me to understand my students, I had to listen to their music. And I and today, uh, music is, I think, is the one way in which to, and, and even with, you know, TikTok and some of the other things as it relates to culture, I see how far-reaching it is and how many people from around the world are listening to our music and doing our dances and how we're reconnecting to Africa. And and it's it's very inspiring to me. It's just as inspiring as listening to Yolanda Adams sing. So so yeah, that that's how that's how I do it. I think we all have our different methods, but mine is <laughs> it, it has helped me get through this pandemic and the losses that that we have yet to realize how impactful it has been because we can't mourn the way we know it. Catherine Coleman Flower, it's been my honor. It's my privilege to have you with me. Thank you so Thank much. You. If folks want to reach you, how can they reach you? I'm available through LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I do respond. Um, looking for people that, that want to share their stories, especially about wastewater and sanitation. Um, 
you look up the Guardians last story that they did on Centerville, we're going to be doing a collection of stories throughout the year on wastewater problems throughout the U.S. So if you have a problem that you want to highlight and you want to be the voice of your community, use this megaphone. I'm passing it on. Hmm. I'm keeping that door open. And that's our guest today. She is Catherine Coleman Flowers, author and founder of the Center for Rural Enterprises Environmental Justice. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.